Let's pray. Our Father, as we've just read, our prayer is to you. You are the one who hears us. You are the one who answers us. You are the one who shows your abundant love towards us. You are the one who shows your saving faithfulness to us. So we trust in that now as a church, as we continue in worship, we come before you trusting that in your abundant love, you have prepared something good for your church this morning, that you are at work in our hearts, that you are at work in our lives, that you are bringing us where we need to go, that you are showing us what we need to see, that you are building this church towards unity and towards maturity and towards fruitfulness in the way that only you can. So, Father, may we have eager ears and eager hearts as we come before your word this morning. We thank you for what you have given us in Psalm 69, and may we understand it clearly for the glory of Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Prophet Elijah said that in 1 Kings 19.14. I'm serving the Lord here, is what he's saying. I'm doing what's right. I'm working zealously, but I'm by myself. The people who should be with me, they're not with me. In fact, they oppose me. And so that sense of discouragement, that sense of unjust isolation, that thought that, am I the only one here who stands for God? Am I the only one here who reads the Bible? Am I the only one who's trying to do the right thing? I feel like I'm getting nothing but trouble for that. What's, what's going on here? And that feeling is what I want to talk about this morning, the feeling that I'm calling Holy frustration. Maybe you felt this. Maybe you felt this sense that the closer you get to God, the farther you get from people who were close to you before. Maybe that happens in your workplace with your colleagues, with your coworkers, or with the people who live near you, or you find people around you are immoral, or they're profane, or they're idolaters, or they're all of the above at the same time, but they all reject the God of the Bible, and that creates distance between you. Or maybe you found holy frustration in your own family, in your own home, your own extended family, or in a a church ministry context where, where you're learning things, you're learning the word, you're growing in Christ, you've got, you're excited about what God is doing in your life, and you're trying to share that with others, and they just don't seem to have much interest in that. It doesn't seem like anybody cares. Maybe you're part of a ministry team, and it seems like all these other people who are supposed to be doing ministry alongside of you, they're, 
they're not engaged. They, they couldn't care less. They have other priorities. Or maybe you're trying to disciple people and encourage people in the church and, and they, they stop responding to your WhatsApp messages or they start sending you angry emails or they start slandering you to others, even worse. So this can, of course, happen to different degrees. There can be minor frustrations and then there can be major ones like the prophet Elijah was describing. But if your commitment is to follow Christ then somewhere along the way, you're going to experience holy frustration to some degree. The Apostle Paul did. We read in Romans chapter 15, and we'll get to Psalm 69 eventually, but in Romans 15 verse 1, this is on Pastor Dave's sermon card for 2029, but in Romans 15 1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak, the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And so, without going into the whole passage, we've got two different groups in the church. The one he calls the strong, the one he calls the weak. They're having conflict. They're all trying to get their own way. And, and, and Paul's feeling this holy frustrations because we should be able to do better than that in the church, that Christians should put their priority on Christ and on his mission and on other things. And, and so why is this? What's his rationale for his exhortation towards Christ? Well, he says this, Romans 15. He says, for Christ did not please himself, but... As it is written, written where? Written in Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so Paul's saying, yeah, I get it. Paul's saying sometimes you serve Christ and people reproach you for it. What do we do about that? What do we do about that holy frustration? Paul's saying the answer is in Psalm 69. So what I want to do right now is I want to go to Psalm 69. Let's turn to that 69th Psalm. And in this passage, we're going to see, first of all, a recipe for holy frustration. Let's understand what this holy frustration is. And then secondly, let's see a strategy for holy frustration. When we're feeling that, what should we do about that? We'll see that in the Psalm as well. But first of all, a recipe for holy frustration. And so as we read the first verses of this Psalm, we see kind of three elements or three ingredients that are common to the to David's holy frustration and ours first of all this feeling that people are against me people are against me because as we read the psalm we look first of all at the heading of the psalm and it says this is according to lilies that probably is a tune that would have been used for singing the song and then it says that this is of David it's a psalm written by David King David is recognized as the author of the psalm and so we know that David was king and so as king of course along the way he had lots of power he had lots of wealth he had lots of influence but if you read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you know that wasn't the whole story of David's life. That David had all these periods where he was struggling, where he was opposed, where he had a zeal for God and God had declared him to be the future king. But that was only realized through years and years of opposition and struggle and pain. So we don't know specifically when in David's life this psalm would have been written. But the gist of this psalm, as we just read, this is a hurting man. A desperate man who's crying out to God for help. And we know that that was David at any number of different points in his life. So he's feeling opposed. People are against him. Look at verse 4. 
More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Everybody's against me. That's what he's feeling. And of course, in the world, you know, there's always bad guys and there's always evil people and terrorists and all that kind of stuff. But as we keep reading, this is, this is closer to home. Because look at verse 8. He says, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. So it's not just the evil people of the world who are against me, but it's my people. It's my brothers. It's my kinsmen. It's the ones who say we're on the same team, the ones who say that they care about God too, the ones that that are part of my community, part of my church too. Even they sometimes are against me. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 20. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. It's not just that I have external opponents, but even internally, even within my own people, it it feels like nobody's with me. It feels like nobody shares my zeal. Nobody cares about the things that I care about. So that's the first ingredient. People are against me. But then second, he says, but I'm serving God. I'm serving God because look at verse 7. He says, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Notice that word, reproach. It's a key word in the psalm. We're going to see it again and again and again. It means means scorn. It means disgrace. It means open rebuke, open disrespect, shame. That's the idea of reproach. Because I'm in dishonor. I'm being mocked. I'm being shamed. That's what's going on here. And he says, it's for your sake. He doesn't claim that he's perfect. He doesn't claim that he's the most holy person in the world. He acknowledges his sin. Verse 5, look at that. He says, oh God, you know my folly, but his sin isn't the reason for this opposition. That this particular opposition, this comes out of a context of serving the Lord. And so this is opposition that is unjust. It's unearned reproach that is for the sake of serving the Lord. And we know that that as David was pursued by Saul, Saul didn't oppose David because David was a thief. Saul opposed David because David was called and anointed by God as king. And so this dishonor that we're talking about in the psalm, it's not the dishonor of opposing God. It's the dishonor of serving God. So look at these descriptions. Verse 4, he says, This hate is without cause. They seek to destroy me. They attack me with lies, he says in verse 4. That's a lie right there that we have a fire going on. But this is, this, is, this is unearned reproach. And so, have you ever felt this? You ever felt lied about? You ever felt reproached? And, and this can really mess with your head. You start thinking, how, how did I become the bad guy here? I was trying to do what was right. I was just trying to to point people towards the Bible. They're the ones who don't want to follow God's word. Why am I now being treated as as a criminal, as somebody who's done something wrong? It doesn't make any sense. It's not based in truth. It's unjust. Look at that in verse 4. He says, they're they're trying to make me give things back, but I haven't even stolen anything. So why am I being treated like a thief? It's not right. Why am I being prosecuted? So we see, okay, people are against me. But I'm serving God. But what makes it worse is the third ingredient, which is that God's not doing anything. 
God's not getting involved. Because since I'm on God's side here, I might think that when others are against me, God's going to intervene. God's going to jump in, and he's going to fix that. But that's not what's happening in the psalm. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. He's saying, I, I feel like I'm drowning, like I'm sinking. I'm, I'm like someone who's been shipwrecked, and I'm out in the middle of the ocean, and here's all these big waves coming over me, and I'm treading water, and I've been doing it for a long time, but I keep getting the water in the face, and it's coming into my mouth, and I'm swallowing more and more, and I'm not sure how much longer I can stay afloat. That's the idea. I'm being pulled under. I need help now. Now you remember, David's a tough guy, right? He's not like, this is not like he stepped on a Lego piece and he's crying about it, but it's like, he's like a giant slayer. He's a tribal warlord. He's somebody who, who does tough things, but, but with this personal betrayal that's being talked about, even a tough guy like this is sinking down into the depths, and he is worn out. Look at verse 3. He says, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. God, I'm waiting. God, are you going to rescue me? God, I'm serving you, and they're against me. God, when are you going to do something about this? See, that's holy frustration. And I ask you again, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt the, the, these pieces, the, the, this sense that, that people are against me, but I'm serving God, and, and God's not getting involved. God's not fixing this. Have you ever felt that? Is there any level on which... That's been a part of your past. Is there any level on which that's something you've experienced recently in, in whatever sphere, on whatever level? I know I, know I have. And that's part of life. That's part of ministry that, that as you're, you're serving and you're, you're wearing yourself out trying to, to see people's eyes open to eternal realities and just the discouragement that so often those eyes remain closed. That's life. That's ministry in a broken world. And it's frustrating. But this psalm is so helpful because it not only identifies this recipe for holy frustration, but also because King David models for us a strategy for holy frustration. Okay, when we're feeling this way, when we're having this kind of experience, what ought we to do as God's faithful people? And we'll see it in four parts. First off, you need to reset your expectations. Reset your expectations because one of the reasons why we feel holy frustration is because we have wrong expectations. Holy frustration can be so frustrating because despite what we know from the Bible, despite what we know from history, what, what, what tends to happen is that we, we're going through a hard time and we start thinking that what we are experiencing here is abnormal. It's not the way that things should be, because what we think is we think, okay, here's how, how it works in my head. What I think should happen is that I serve God, I'm going to make sacrifices, I'm going to do ministry, and as a result, people should respond with great thankfulness and great joy, and they should all respond to the things I'm sharing and the things I'm teaching, and, you know, the whole world should be fixed because of their appreciation for the things that I'm doing. People shouldn't ignore me or laugh at me or slander me or lie about me. That's, that's the way I think. And see, I think all of us maybe have a little bit of 
like prosperity theology somewhere in our hearts where we think, okay, if, if I just have the right kind of zeal for God, then I ought to expect everyone to respond to that in the right way. But see, that makes sense as a logical description of the way things ought to be. I, yes, it should be that way. But that is not the way things actually are in a broken world. So we already saw in verse 8 how, you know, it says in the verse, I become a stranger and an alien to my own people. You ever heard language like that before? And then look at verse 9. It says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. He's saying, I am being driven by zeal. Like the King James, it says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's eating at me, this sense of zeal, this sense of fervor, this this passion for God, for the house of God, for the temple of God, for the worship of God. I'm passionate for God. I'm, I'm zealous for God and for his glory. And see that little word, for, at the beginning of the verse, for, like this is the reason for my estrangement. My zeal for God is not incidental to my betrayal and my estrangement from people. Zeal for God is the reason why I'm estranged from my own people. You say, well, why? Why is that? Why why does zeal for God separate me from my own people? And there's an easy answer. Because they don't have zeal for God. Because they... They don't share that zeal for God. We're we're from the same place. We we follow the same religion. We go to the same temple. But but I feel this sense of compulsion to respond to the biblical vision of God and his glory. And not everybody feels the same way. And see, it's not personal. It's not about you when people respond to you this way in life and ministry. It's not like you're a bad person who's done something wrong. Look at the second part of verse 9. It says, And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And if you remember, that's the same part we saw Paul quote in Romans 15. And the point is, whatever I, what I'm experiencing in my life is reproaches are falling on me. I'm experiencing people not liking me, people uh, reviling me. But what the verse says is that what's actually going on is those people don't like God. That's why they don't like me. And what the psalm is showing us is that in the time of King David, most of God's people didn't care that much about God. And guess what? That's true in our time as well. Right now, most of the world doesn't care about God. Most of your country doesn't care about God. Most professing Christians don't care that much about God. They may say they do, but, but at least at the level of their understanding, but at the level of their submission to God, their worship of God, the, the, the way they live their life in response to God, that zeal is not there, so they oppose you Because despite their surface-level profession, at the level of their heart and their deepest commitments, they oppose the one for whom you have great zeal. So they reproach him. And because they reproach him, they reproach you. And they may still acknowledge God. 
They may still post little Bible verses on their wall, but do they desire above all else to know him and to follow him and to obey him? No, no, not so much. It's like it says in another psalm, in Psalm 119, 139, you know, Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's all about the Word of God and the power of the Word of God. And in verse 139, it says, My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. It's saying that God has, has given his word to his people. The holy God, the creator of the whole world, he has spoken he has revealed himself to us. He has given us a guide for our life, for, for our ministry, for all that we do. He has spoken in this word. But then there's a lot of people out there that just don't bother to read it, don't bother to know it. Certainly even more, don't try to follow it. My, they forget these words, so they oppose those with zeal for those words. And, you know, it, it may be that, you know, maybe as we talk about holy frustration, you know, maybe, maybe some of you are out there and, and you're really not, you're not tracking with this at all. You say, well, I don't know, I don't know, what, know what he's talking about. Because you, you've never felt this. You've never felt this sense of frustration about the spiritual state of the people around you. And I just, I just wonder, could that be because you find yourself on the other side of this? Could it be that the reason why you're like, oh yeah, I think everything's fine spiritually, could it be because you're one of these ones who, are, who have forgotten God's words, who are not driven by a passion to know and respond to God's words and call other people to do the same? Could that be you? And if that's the case, let's not stay there. Let this word from the Lord this morning give you a sense of God, give you a vision for God that drives you to want to know him, drives you to want to know how you can be reconciled to him in Christ. So what our passage is saying then is that in most countries, in most places, in most times, if you want to have a zeal for God, that makes you a stranger. That makes you an alien, even to your brothers, even to those close to you, that your zeal to know the Lord puts you in a minority, and against you are these combined forces of the unbelieving world and the apathetic church who together are going to oppose you because you reject their values and you oppose their sin. So zeal for God, it's not going to lead to the welcome of the world. It's going to lead to the reproach of the world, and sometimes to the reproach even of the church. And so we're talking about our expectations and we need to expect, friends, that that is the normal state of things. That's the way things are usually going to be in a sinful and broken world. And so when you, next Tuesday, start feeling this sense of holy frustration with some group that you're a part of, don't be surprised by that. Reproach has always been the experience of God's servants. We look back at Elijah, the prophet. We, you know, we could talk about other prophets like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 15, 15, he said, Oh Lord, you know, but remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. He's saying, I'm serving the Lord, and what's the result? Reproach. I'm bearing reproach, and we could go through many other prophets, biblical characters, people from church history, 
But what about Jesus? What about our Savior? He, our, he's prophesied of in the words of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 6, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, reproached by mankind and despised by the people. That's what happened to Jesus when the Son of God came into the world and lived a perfect life and proclaimed the kingdom of God. He was reproached. He bore reproach, and he himself said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So if you're thinking that I'm going to just be zealous for God, and I'm going to serve the Lord and the church, and it's all going to be great, and I'm going to avoid betrayal, and I'm going to avoid reproach, friends, you need to reset your expectations. You need to reorient those expectations, and then we need to keep going and see the second part of this strategy for holy frustration. To do that, we want to go back to verse 1. The psalm begins, Save me, O God. Save me, O God. And where that's taking us is to say, okay, when we feel frustrated in ministry, when the opposition is there, when people aren't responding that way, yes, we need to have the right expectations. We need to reset expectations. But where the psalm is beginning is to tell us that that we also, secondly, need to remember God. Remember your God. That's the instinct here. That's where this, this writer is going, that, that, it's, that he, he's feeling like he's drowning. Remember the situation. He, he's drowning. He's lost. He's, he's opposed. And so for some people, that would drive them into utter despair. There's nothing to be done. I'm just going to collapse and fall down into the corner. Or for some, that would drive them away from God. Obviously, God's not a good God. He's not doing anything. But that's not what he does. And see that. That even though this writer is frustrated at what seems to be God's inaction, this holy frustration does not drive him away from God, but it drives him straight back to God. You see that? Save me. Oh my God. And so he's suffering. And what does he do? He's suffering and then he calls out to God. But why? Why does he do that? And we can see in the psalm, why is he calling upon this God? Why is he saying, save me, O God? God doesn't seem to have fixed it thus far. Why do you keep going to him? Why do you keep calling out to him? Why do you keep thinking he's going to do something here? And we see in the psalm, it's because of what he believes, what he knows to be true about the character of his God. This psalmist hope in God comes from his belief about God. Now, I can tell you about my father, my father is a godly man. He's served the Lord for many years. And a, and a couple of weeks ago, he had a medical condition, a serious condition. He had to have he had a problem with his heart. And so they had to do this big surgery and open him up and take his heart out of his body and repair it. And it's serious. It's dangerous. And, and um, so, the, you know, the, and by the way, he's doing fine now. It was all successful. And He's home recovering from this, but, but the day before the surgery, so the, just, just the night before, he's going to go in in the morning and have this big surgery, and, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. That's what we were looking at. So the day before the surgery, I was, I was there with him, with other family members, and it's all very scary, and you're thinking about all the risks and all the ways that this can go wrong, and, and so I, I just said to him, I said, Dad, like, like this could be it. 
this, you know, this could be the end. We don't know if this is going to come out okay. And, like, how do you think about that? How, you know, are you, are you afraid? And, and what he said to me, he said, he said, you know, I know that I might die tomorrow. And he said, I don't need to find some new and different hope at a moment like this. But what I need to do is to cling to the hope that sustains me every single day of my life. And that's what I know about the character of God. And what he did then is he opened up the Psalms and he pointed me to truths like this, like verse 13 where it says, talks about the abundance of your steadfast love. That God is a loving God and his love is abundant and steadfast. That God loves his people. His love, is, his love isn't going anywhere. His love is constant. It's, it's unchanging even when we're suffering. That God's love is there. God's love is abundant. It's not just like a little bit of love, but it's, it's more love than we could ever exhaust. That's the kind of love that God has. We're talking about verse 13. You're saving faithfulness. That you are faithful. You have made promises. You are going to keep your promises. You are going to deliver your people. That's the kind of God that we serve. Or verse 16, he says, your steadfast love is good. This, this love, I trust in that. That's what I need. That's what's good for me is the steadfast love of God. That's what I can hold on to. That's what I can cling to in a time like this. Or verse 15, he talks about your abundant mercy. That God is, yes, he's loving, yes, he's faithful, but he's also merciful. He's forgiving. I know that I don't deserve to be right with God, but he has shown mercy to me in Christ, and that mercy abounds. And the same mercy and goodness and faithfulness that God has always shown, I have to believe that he's going to keep showing even when I'm in my hardest moments. See, that's the kind of God that we serve. A couple of years ago, I had a similar conversation with my friend Biju John. At that time, Biju was about to go in for a surgery, a, a risky surgery that was related to this condition that ultimately took his life. And so, saying, you know, he, was, it's, he doesn't know if he's going to come out on the other side of this surgery. And so he said to me, he said, Eric, I hope that God gives me more time. He said, I, I, I want to be there to care for my family. He said, there's so much more gospel ministry I still want to do. But then he said, Eric, but I know that God is good. And I know that his plan is good. And if he wants to bring me home, I'm ready. And we prayed together for more time. And God did, did give him more time. And we spent many more good times together after that. But just not as much time as we had hoped. But Bijou's life continued bearing fruit. And it, it continues to. But but what I saw in both of those moments with my father, with, with B.J. John, two godly men, and these are men who in their darkest moments were sustained, were, were held up by their theology, by their, by their past study that shaped their present thinking that led them to future hope. And see, that's what David is talking about here. That's what he's doing here because in verse 19, look what he says. he says. He says, you know my reproach. Who knows my reproach? Well, well, this God, the one we've been talking about, the one with steadfast love, the one with abundant mercy, that God, that God knows. 
He knows what I'm going through right now. He, you see, he knows your hopes. He knows your dreams. He knows your medical condition. He knows your opponents. He knows the wrongs that are being done against you. He knows your enemies. He knows what he wants to do for the spread of his name. He knows all of it. He knows everything that's going on in your life and in your church and in your world and in your future. He, he knows all of that. And the psalmist is saying, God, you know that. And so if I know these things about God... I know what he is like. I know he is good, and I know that he knows. What a sure ground that gives me to keep trusting whatever is going on now. Because here's this psalmist, and he's being betrayed. The people that should have been on his side, the people that should have comforted him, well, they didn't comfort him. They should have at least given him a drink of water, at least given him something to eat. But look at verse 21. It says that these people, what they do, they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. They gave him vinegar. They're, they're mocking him. They're shaming him. You need a drink of water? How about some vinegar to wash that down with? He's being mocked. He's being shamed. And, and see, that kind of shame, that kind of reproach, that's what our Savior experienced. And even more than that. And in fact, this verse, verse 21, about the poisoned food, that's used in the New Testament to describe the suffering of Christ on the cross. Because you want to talk about unjust suffering and betrayal? Well, God knows something about unjust suffering and betrayal. How about the perfect Son of God being tortured and mocked and reproached on the cross by his own people for your sin? But see, the suffering of Christ is not evidence against steadfast love of God. It's not like, oh, we don't believe that God is loving because Christ died on the cross, but no, that's the proof of God's steadfast love. That's how we can know that God's saving faithfulness is still there no matter what we're going through because by that suffering, your sin can be forgiven. Because we know something this psalmist didn't know. We know how God would satisfy his justice. We know how God would deal with reproaches now and how he could forgive reproachers and those guilty of every other kind of sin. It's through the Son of God bearing the reproach of those who turn to him in faith. And we can all do that. And so, friend, know that your God cares. Remember your God when you're frustrated. Remember your God when you're in pain. Your God cares. Your God knows. So do what this psalmist does and talk to him. Cry out to him. Call to him. Look how David does it. Verse 13 and, and 16 and 17, three times he says, Answer me, God, God, answer me. God, I know you want to do something. I'm talking to you, God, please answer. See, he's assuming that God is hearing. He's assuming that God is listening. He knows God's character compels him to act in a saving way, so he's calling upon him to do what he knows God desires to do. And we have seven different imperatives, starting in verse 13, talking about, you know, God, act, God, answer, deliver, draw near, redeem me, free me. He, he's saying, God is a God who delivers. So I'm calling upon God to do what I know he said he will do. Save me, God. Help me, God. He's remembering his God even as he's drowning, even as he's flailing. God, I know your mercy. I know your love. Don't hide from me now. In this place of absolute reliance on the intervention of God, that's a good place for us as Christians to be. Maybe, maybe that's why God 
allows the Christian life to be so often marked by holy frustration. Maybe that's why that prosperity concept of if I just do the right things, everyone's going to respond in the right way. Maybe why that's not true. Because if that were true, we wouldn't need dependence on God. We wouldn't need the intervention of God. We wouldn't need to remember God. But we do. We do. So church, let's be a people like this. Let's be a people who build up our knowledge of God amidst the busyness of life and then apply that knowledge of God in the opposition of life. So remember your God. But then there's a third step. A little more surprising, perhaps. And it's this. After you remember your God, or as you remember your God, then you need to release your reproaches. Release your reproaches. Because we have this prayer starting in verse 13. We talked about that. But then when we get to verse 22, this prayer starts to take this, this harsher tone. It becomes a little, a little less nice. It's what we call an imprecatory prayer. He says things like, verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. Or verse 24, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. And so we live in this age that idolizes a secular definition of kindness, and it's very hard for us to understand this kind of language. It seems unchristian to us. And we should be reminded that there's a risk here. And the risk is that holy frustration can easily become sinful frustration. Holy frustration can easily tempt us to sinful anger. It can become, uh, it can become bitterness. It can become, you know, consumed by how stupid and messed up and foolish everybody else is. It can complain. It can isolate itself or or, or, or holy frustration can tempt us towards pride and thinking that we're better than everybody else and we know everything and everyone else is wrong. Or holy frustration can tempt us to become selfish and it's all about me and the things that I want. I, I say that I'm frustrated for the honor of God, but really I just want everything to be done in my way. That's a temptation. Holy frustration can tempt us just to, to give up. And to say, well, it's, you know, all these people are, are no good anyway, so I'm not even going to try anymore. I'm just going to, you know, sit back in my house and just chill. But that's not holy frustration. That's sinful frustration. And what all those different kinds of temptations to sinful frustration have in common is a personal holding on of reproaches. It's saying, these people have reproached me. These people are not doing the things I want them to do. And so, therefore, I'm going to reproach them. They need to get theirs. They need to get what's coming to them. What they're doing isn't right. And so, i got to hold on to that. i got to be angry about that. i got to be bitter about that. I've got to do something about all these bad people. I'm holding on to it. And so, even though God has told us that these reproaches against us are ultimately reproaches against him, sinful frustration takes it personally and says, no, this is a reproach against me, and I am responsible to get vengeance for this. And the psalm's telling us, don't do that. Don't hold on to reproaches, because what Psalm 69 is showing us is that once we've reset our expectations and remembered our God, what we can then do is we can release our reproaches. And so these words in verse 22 to 29 that sound so harsh, they're not words that are being said 
to the opponents, but they're words that are being said to God about the opponents. And guess what? It's not a sin to tell God what you're thinking, because guess what? God knows what you're thinking anyway, so you may as well just tell him. See, it's acknowledging to God, God, right now, I'm really frustrated. God, right now, it feels like I'm being punished for following you, and it feels like the people who are opposing you are getting away with it. And their lives are easy, and their lives are good, and everything's fine with them, and I'm the one who's hurting, but I'm the one who's serving you. God, that's really frustrating. We can acknowledge that to God. And it may be that as we acknowledge that to God, we'll be reminded that nobody really gets away with anything. And that's what he's saying. And even this language, it seems strong. We could summarize these verses this way, what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, God, do what you've promised to do. God, do to these opponents what you have promised to do to such people. It's not, God, help me get my own vengeance on this person. It's saying, God, this is in your hands. God, you have promised that there are consequences for sin. So God, let these sinners experience the consequences of their own sin. Let them even, it says in verse 28, let them be blotted out of your book. Let them no longer be on this list of people who are in fellowship with God's people. Let them be, if you will, church disciplined. Let them receive the consequences of their own sin. God, it's in your hands. This reproach is not about me. It's not my responsibility to fix them and to get vengeance on them and make it right with them. No, I trust God for that. I trust God to do what's right. I, I remember God's character. I trust that God will ultimately act in accord with justice and that he will bring a result that gives him glory even when I don't see the end of this unjust suffering. You think of it this way. You think, you know, think about when Jesus was crucified. And think about Judas. How about that for a betrayal? How about that for a reproach? The greatest sin ever committed was the betrayal of the Son of God. And so how do you think those other disciples felt about Judas? He was their brother. He was their co-worker. He was their co-laborer. And he betrayed their Lord unto death. And if anyone ever deserved vengeance, surely it would be Judas. So do you think Peter and the others had any kind of thoughts like that? But guess what? God dealt with Judas. Because shortly thereafter, he had this money, he had the rewards of his sin, and it turned bitter for him, and he ended up in his despair, taking his own life. And when the apostles looked back and they thought about that, you know what biblical truth that reminded them of? Psalm 69. Because in Acts chapter 1, Peter says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Then he goes on, Acts chapter 1. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. So Peter's quoting from Psalm 69, 25. He's saying, God dealt with Judas. God dealt with Judas, and he will deal with all of the Judases in his own way, in his own time. It might be tomorrow, and it might be a hundred years from now, but let's put that in God's hands and let God handle those reproaches. So don't treat offenses against God as offenses against you. 
Give them back to a God of justice. Let God deal with his own reputation. So release your reproaches. And as you use David's strategy, I think what you'll find is that your holy frustration is not so frustrating. That rather than it being a temptation that's pulling you towards sins of discouragement and despair and anger, that what you can do is that you can experience holy frustration as a God-centered response to a sinful world, and that holy frustration can fuel your hope and fuel your joy and fuel your service for Christ as you use this strategy to reset your expectations to remember your God, to release your reproaches, and then finally, finally, renew your zeal. Renew your zeal, because we use this word zeal and, and passion and energy, and, and sometimes that's not very popular today. We, we feel like people who are really zealous, oh, like they're a little too intense. You know, we want to be cool, we want to be above it, we want to be relaxed and calm, and we kind of laugh at people who are a little, a little too earnest, a little, a little too zealous. But see, we, ha- we live in a culture, and what the culture and its pressures are doing, they're trying to rob you of your zeal. The message is stop working so hard, stop teaching so seriously, stop evangelizing so persistently, stop, stop feeling such urgency for the gospel. There's all the time in the world, let's just kind of relax and all be lighthearted and have a good time here. That's not really a today problem. About 400 years ago, John Owen said the lack of zeal, and I quote, hath filled the world with a dead, faithless, fruitless ministry. He's saying we need to renew our zeal. Because if we're experiencing holy frustration because, as we saw in verse 9, because zeal for your house has consumed me, we might be tempted to say, okay, the solution to this frustration is let's like tone down the zeal a little bit. Let's have a little less zeal, and then maybe we'll have a little less opposition. Let's just kind of pull it all a little bit down. But that's not what the psalm is telling us. It's saying that what we need is not less zeal, but more zeal. More zeal for the character of God more zeal for the worship of God, more zeal for the name and the glory of God. So I want you to see how this psalm comes to an end. Now, the situation has not changed. As we come to the end of the psalm, you know, nothing is different. He's still drowning. He's still desperate. He's still the object of scorn and object of reproach. But even amidst all that, while while all of that is still going on, here's what this man of zeal is going to do. Verse 30 He says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving because guess what? I'm remembering God. I'm remembering his sustaining power through my opposition. I'm anticipating his deliverance in the future. And even though this holy frustration is still going on, I'm going to make a choice to rejoice. I'm going to keep praising him because even as I suffer, I'm doing that with hope. I'm remembering, you know, at the end of this psalm, verse 35, God will save Zion. God will build up the cities of Judah because I'm, I, I'm trusting that God is going to work. I'm trusting that God is going to deliver his people. I believe that about the future. And see, this psalm, friends, it doesn't pretend, it doesn't promise that the conditions that have led to your frustration are going to change anytime soon. We, you may well live your whole life in this state of holy 
frustration on some level. I can't say that people are going to suddenly become responsive. They probably will not. But this psalm reminds us, and mark this down, that even if not one single thing in your life ever changes, even if all of the suffering and all of the grief and all of the discouragement and all of the pain, even if it stays there and doesn't change, your God is still worthy of praise. That's what he believes, and that's what we need to believe. A person of zeal is a person who believes that there is a place and a time where holy frustration is fully resolved in the presence of Christ, And even though we're not there yet, even though God's justice is not yet fulfilled, I'm going to live by faith that as if it has been, because I believe that it will be. And when you use your holy frustration that way, you're not going to be led into bitterness and selfishness. But holy frustration directed back to the Lord is going to lead you away from your human answers and your human solutions and give you a glimpse of, of God and his glory. And as you see that glory, your frustration is going to be fanned into a flaming passion for others to see that glory. I want them to see what I see. I want them to know the God that I know. I want them to have the hope that I have. I want them to be able to cry out to the Lord the way I do. That's what I want. God, will you do that? I want others to worship you. And when the Son of God came into the world... Of course, he had more reason for holy frustration than most. It's an appropriate thing for us to remember on Palm Sunday as we start the Passion Week and look towards Easter next weekend. Remember that whatever reason you have for holy frustration, Jesus had more. Whatever room Jesus was ever in, he was the most godly person there, the most holy person there, the most theologically astute, biblically literate person, smartest person in the room. He was always that. As Vizzini said, everyone else is morons compared to him. So that was Jesus. Every moment there had to be this, this move towards holy frustration. Why don't these people get it? And Jesus served God. Jesus taught the things of God. Jesus was opposed by the world. God the Father didn't deliver him from his darkest moment. He felt that reproach. But Jesus never succumbed to sinful frustration. In his holy frustration, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never had the wrong expectations. Jesus always remembered what was true of God. Jesus constantly cried out to God, and Jesus was constantly captivated by a zeal for the worship of God. And so in John chapter 2, and we'll end with this, in John chapter 2, go ahead and turn there, Gospel of John chapter 2, here we have Jesus early in his earthly ministry, He goes up to the temple, as Jews always did, and here he is, and you know, here are a lot of people around, probably, and here's all these people, and all of them claim to follow God, and all of them say, yes, we're God's people, we're we're chosen, we're anointed, we follow God, and what was expected for Jesus was just to go through the motions of worship like everybody else, but then Jesus looked around, and Jesus saw 
business being done and he saw money being made and he saw people getting rich and he saw other people getting poor and he saw people playing games on their iPhones in the back and what he didn't see was a lot of genuine worship of God. And so John 2.15 says, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We should be worshiping God, is what he's saying. This is a place for the worship of God. All you people should be worshiping God. If you only knew, if you only see, if you could only know this God that created you to worship him, if you only knew that, you would be devoting yourself to worshiping him. But you're not doing that right now. That's what he's seeing. And so he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove these obstacles. I'm going to do what it takes to remove the obstacles in the way of the worship of these people, the things that stand in the way of people seeing God and responding to him truly. And so he made a mess. And in that moment, no doubt his disciples were like a little embarrassed of him and saying, what's, what's going on here? But, but later on, it says in John 2, later on, once they really understood who this Son of God was, it says they remembered. What they remembered was Psalm 69. 2.17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so friends, Amidst your holy frustration, be like Christ. Be like Christ and renew your zeal. Don't have less zeal, have have more zeal. And this won't always mean turning over tables. Most of the time for Jesus, it didn't. But it will mean always living in a way that's ambitious for the greater worship of God. And so at the end of Psalm 69, verse 34, it ends with this, this call, and it says, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. This psalm is a psalm that ultimately says, We want God to be worshipped everywhere. And Redeemer Church, let's make that the cry of our hearts together. Let's say, yes, let's do this together, because even as this psalm feels individualistic in some ways, At the very end, it says, those who love his name shall dwell in it. The psalmist is recognized, I feel like I'm alone, but I know I'm not alone. I know there's others out here who love God's name. I know there's others out here who are consumed by the glory of God. So let's go. Let's do this together, Redeemer. Let's be the people who love the name of God. Let's use our holy frustration to keep making this church the kind of place where we are learning theology and speaking the Bible and repenting of sin and striving for holiness and hoping against hope and standing out in this place because we are a people who are transfixed by a vision for the glory of God. And see, as we do that, what we want to do is we want to drive out of this place all the apathy and indifference and stupor that marks the age in which we live. Let's be a people who are consumed by zeal. Let us be the people who are calling on heaven and earth and the seas and everything to praise the name of our God. And we say, Lord, will you do that here at Redeemer Church? Lord, your steadfast love is good. Please work in us. Please work through us. Please answer in the name of Christ. Amen.